Welcome to the most controversial podcast on the air, Baptized in Eternal Fire, with your host, it's your boy, Sunny Medallion, bringing you the real truth behind the so-called truth offered to you by the media, exposing the lies, propaganda, and falsehoods, putting it together piece by piece. Baptized in Eternal Fire will purge you and cleanse you with the true facts behind today's current events. Here's your host, Sunny Medallion. Good morning, good morning, everyone. It's your boy, Sonny Medallion. It's been a while since I've been on air presenting you guys with the recent developments that's been taking place around the world. You're not going to hear much of me today. Um, there's a recording from John Mearshimer, and um, he speaks on the Israel, Hamas, Ukraine, Russia, and China issues. And I think it's very important that you guys really listen to this. Um, it's about 35 minutes long. And he explains to us why the United States of America is in serious trouble. All right. So let's introduce Professor John Mearshimer in a lecture that he gave to an audience in Brisbane on Monday, October the 23rd. Um, you know, like I say, um, it's very important that you guys listen to this and, uh, let me know what you think about it after hearing it. Good evening. My name is Tom Spitzer. I'm the executive director at the Center for Independent Studies, aware of classical liberal public policy research think tank based in Sydney. And we've been around for the best part of 50 years. Now, John Mearsheimer is Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. He's also author of many prominent books, most notably The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. That was published in 2001, which predicted that the rise of China would not be peaceful. Now, John is, according to the next edition of the prestigious New York-based foreign affairs magazine, quote, one of the most famous political scientists in history. And that article was written by a critic. And with that, please welcome John Mearsheimer. Paying your bills on time raises your credit score, right? Wrong. In fact, this is the first of three major credit score lies you're being told by the big credit companies. Fall for any critic. And with that, please welcome John Mearsheimer. much Tom for the kind introduction and thank you all for coming out tonight I'm amazed at how many people are here uh, the subject I want to talk about for about 25 minutes uh, and then I'll be more than willing after Peter makes his comments on my comments to take any questions that folks have uh, is all about American grand strategy and my argument is that the United States is losing focus. And you say to yourself, what exactly does that mean? I believe that the principal threat that the United States faces in the world is the rise of China and the possibility that China might try to dominate Asia. And I think we have a deep-seated interest in containing China. But 
What's happened is that the United States has lost focus and it's got diverted into the Ukraine war in Europe and it's now getting diverted into the Middle East uh, with the war between Hamas and Israel. And the United States, therefore, unable to pivot completely to Asia. And I think this is a major mistake for the United States. And what I want to do tonight is elaborate my thinking on that main thesis, okay? The best starting point for thinking about this issue is just to talk about the global balance of power. It's very, understand, very important to understand that most of the young people in the audience came of age during the unipolar moment. The period from 1989, when the Cold War ended, up until about 2017, is commonly known as the unipolar moment. And what that means is that there was only one great power on the planet. And that one great power was the United States of America. This is a world that Australians almost to a person loved because the United States provided security for you and there was no China threat, there was no Soviet threat, and you were able to grow economically in all sorts of ways to become more prosperous. This was the unipolar moment. But it's very important to understand that what's happened is that the unipolar moment is in the rearview mirror. It's gone. We are now in a multipolar world where we went from one great power to three great powers, the United States, China, and Russia. And we now consider Russia a great power because Vladimir Putin, since he took over in 2000, has brought the Russians back from the dead. Most of you know that in the 1990s, Russia had basically died. Putin brought them back from the dead. So Russia's a great power, China's a great power, and of course, Uncle Sam is a great power. Now, it's important to understand that Uncle Sam is still the most powerful state on the planet. But nevertheless, China is a peer competitor. It is growing economically, it is growing militarily, and it is beginning to close in on the United States. And that's why I said to you folks before, China is the real threat to the United States. Russia is the weakest of those three great powers. Okay? It's very important to understand, that's the basic architecture of the system at this point in time. Right. We went from unipolarity to multipolarity. We have three great powers. Sam is one, China's two, and the Russians are a distant third. That's the world. Let me switch gears now and just talk a little bit, little bit about American grand strategy and tie it to that global balance of power. For the United States of America, there are three areas that you fight and die for, where you expend blood and iron. Those three areas of the world are Europe, East Asia, and the Persian Gulf. You care about Europe and you care about East Asia because that's where the great powers are. And if you're the United States of America and you're a great power, you care about the other great powers. The Gulf is of great interest to the United States and other countries on the planet simply because it has oil. And oil is a very special resource. And the United States does not want any country controlling all of the oil in the Persian Gulf. 
So the United States has a deep-seated interest in maintaining a balance of power in the Persian Gulf. Now, we have these three areas of the world, East Asia, Europe, and the Gulf. Historically, the United States has cared the most about Europe. Europe has been historically much more important than East Asia. And that's because the most powerful great powers on the planet have been located mainly in Europe. Nazi Germany was a much greater threat than Imperial Japan. The Soviet Union, which spanned Europe and Asia, had most of its military might concentrated in Europe. So we have long had a Europe first policy. That changed after 2017. For the first time in American history, East Asia is the most important area of the world for us. Why is that the case? One very simple reason. Who's the peer competitor out there? It's not Germany. It's not Russia. It's China. Where is China located? It's located in East Asia. Therefore, East Asia is the most important area of the world. And what I'm telling you is that the United States should pivot right, to East Asia and not get bogged down in Europe. The Russians don't matter that much. They're not a threat to dominate Europe. And the Persian Gulf does not have a potential hegemon sitting in that region. There's no one country that's going to take over all the oil. So we're, in an ideal world, free to pivot. But we've not fully pivoted. And what I'm telling you, and I'm going to lay this out in more detail, is we are going to get more deeply involved in Ukraine and in the Middle East than we already are. And in both cases, the problem is not going to go away. The situation regarding Ukraine and Russia is going to get worse with time for us. And the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the problems in the Middle East are going to get worse as well. Darkness ahead in both regions. And what does that mean? It means it's difficult to pivot. One final point. It's very important to understand that if the United States is worried about dealing with China, and there's one other great power in the system, and that other great power is Russia, you want Russia on your side of the ledger. In other words, if you're the United States and you're looking at a China threat, and there's Russia, you want Russia with you. Russia represents power. It is a great power. You want the Russians with you against the Chinese. What have we foolishly done? We have foolishly pushed the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. So the Russians and the Chinese, as you surely all know, are tightly allied. This is not in our interest. It should be Uncle Sam and the Chinese. I mean, excuse me, Uncle Sam and the Russians that are tightly allied against China. That's the basic situation we face. This is why I say we've lost focus and we're in trouble. Now, what I want to do is I want to unpack it for you. I want to unpack this argument in greater detail. Number one, I want to briefly talk about East Asia and what's happened with regard to U.S. policy toward China. That's pretty straightforward. But then I want to get into the tricky issues, one, Ukraine, and two, the Middle East. Talk about the Ukraine war and the Israel-Palestine conflict and its potential for escalation. And make my point that we're going to have a tough time fully pivoting to East Asia. 
Let's start with Ukraine. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of background on the history of the Ukraine problem so you have a feel for sort of how this got started and why we're in the present situation. When the Cold War ended, uh, the United States debated whether or not to expand NATO eastward. And we decided in the early 90s, the Bill Clinton administration did, that we were going to expand NATO eastward. And the Russians made it unequivocally clear from the beginning this was unacceptable. They just were opposed. But they were very weak in the 1990s. Remember what I said before? And they were even very weak in the early 2000s. This is before they are brought back from the dead by Putin. So in 1999, we shoved NATO expansion down their face, down their throat, when we bring in Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. That's 1999, okay? Then in 2004, we shove another tranche of NATO expansion down their throat. This is when we bring in the Baltic states, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovenia, Slovakia. The Russians are hollering out loud that this is unacceptable, they don't want it, but they're too weak, and we push it down their throat. That's 2004. First tranche, 99. Second tranche, 2004. In April 2008, that's when we make the really big mistake. We say at Bucharest, the annual NATO summit at Bucharest, April 2008, we're bringing Ukraine and Georgia into the alliance. Putin says at the time, the Russians make it unequivocally clear across the board that this is not happening. And Putin makes it clear that he will destroy Ukraine before he allows it to become a member of the alliance. The Americans think that they can just shove it down Putin's throat just like they did in 1999, just like they did in 2004. So we continue to push. And not only are we pushing NATO expansion, we're pushing EU expansion at the same time, and we're trying to foster a color revolution. Many of you, I'm sure, remember the orange revolution we were trying to foster in Ukraine. What are we doing there? We're trying to turn Ukraine into a liberal democracy that has a pro-West orientation. This spooks the Russians like you wouldn't believe. A liberal democratic Ukraine that's in the EU, that's in NATO, especially in NATO, on their border. The crisis breaks out in 2014, 2008, Bucharest. 2014 is when the crisis breaks out. That's when the Russians take Crimea, number one, and two, that's when the civil war breaks out inside Ukraine in the Donbass. So there's big trouble in 2014, and that trouble continues through 2021. And at the end of 2021, the Russians are scrambling to get some sort of agreement. The Americans won't agree. And on February 24th, 2022, a war breaks out. The present war breaks out. So you see, the crisis broke out in 2014, and that's when Crimea was lost. And then eight years later, February 2022, the war that we now read about every day broke out. That's the background. 
what you want to now think about is what's happening in that war. Where is this train headed? That's what you want to know. Now, in 2022, remember the war breaks out in February 2022. If you go from February 2022 to the end of the year, let's say December 31st, 2022, over that time period, the Ukrainians do very well. They do very well. Uh, the Russians are slow to mobilize, and the Russians are not a highly efficient fighting force at that point in time. And we're beginning to think in 2022 that we're going to beat the Russians, push them out of the Donbass, push them out of Crimea, and really maybe even knock them out of the ranks of the great powers. So we're playing hardball with the Russians. But what the Russians do in the end, at the end of September 2022 is they mobilize 300,000 men and they begin to learn how to fight on the battlefield. And then over the course of 2023, the year that we're now in, they are raising an additional 425,000 men. And they have an industrial base that allows them to produce huge amounts of artillery, huge numbers of tanks, huge numbers of aircraft, huge numbers of helicopters, right? The Ukrainians don't have that capability. They depend on us. And you know what? We ran down our industrial base during the unipolar moment. We do not, we in the West, this includes Australia, we do not collectively have the capability to produce lots of artillery tubes, artillery shells, tanks, and so forth and so on. The Russians do. Now, why does this matter? What you want to understand about this war between Ukraine and Russia is it's a war of attrition. It's Muhammad Ali. Right? And Joe Frazier standing toe-to-toe, -to -toe, pounding the living daylights out of each other. That's what it is. Think World War I on the Western Front. Okay? That's the kind of war this is. Nothing fancy about this one. The question you want to ask yourself is, who wins in a war of attrition where two armies are head-to-head? -head? Two factors matter. The population size of each country, because that tells you how many soldiers you can send to the front, population size, and how much artillery each side has. Uh, when I went to West Point and I was in the American military, we were taught that artillery is the king of battle. And a war of attrition, that is certainly true. But the question is, what does the population ratio look like between the two sides? What's the artillery ratio look like? You want to know what the population ratio is? It's five to one in the Russians' favor. You want to know what the artillery ratio looks like? It's somewhere between five to one and ten to one. And most people think it's ten to one at this point in time in the Russians' favor. And we cannot, we in the West cannot rectify that imbalance. So you have the situation where the Ukrainians are outnumbered population-wise five to one. They're outnumbered probably 7 to 1, 10 to 1 in terms of artillery. Can't improve either one of those situations. And in a war of attrition, that's the kiss of death. And furthermore, on top of all that, as you know, they launched a counteroffensive on 4 June of this year. My God, the Ukrainians have suffered enormous casualties with these offensives. We've encouraged them to attack the Russians. It was 
foolish in the extreme, in my opinion. The Ukrainians should have remained on the defensive. They have suffered such casualties. And they already were down 5 to 1 population-wise and down in terms of artillery. They're going to lose. They're going to lose. There's no way the Ukrainians can win. Right. Uh, what does losing mean in this case? The Russians are not going to conquer the whole country. It would be a massive mistake. It's a huge piece of real estate, Ukraine. And furthermore, there are lots of people, especially in the central part and the western part of Ukraine, who are ethnic Ukrainians who hate the Russians. Occupying that area would be insane. What the Russians are going to end up doing is they now control close to 23% of Ukraine. I believe they'll try to take another 20%. They have annexed, they have annexed, the Russians have annexed four oblasts plus Korea. And I believe that they will try to annex another four oblasts. And at the same time, they're going to go to great lengths to turn Ukraine into a dysfunctional rump state. A dysfunctional rump state. They will interfere in the politics of Ukraine. They will interfere with the Ukrainian economy. And they will do everything they can to wreck Ukraine and keep it wrecked, as they said they would in 2008, and they have consistently said afterwards. Now, the problem here, I mean, aside from the fact that this is a devastating defeat for Ukraine, the problem is Ukraine won't be knocked out of the fight completely. And what you will get at some point is not a peace agreement. You're not going to get a peace agreement here. You're going to get a frozen conflict. The fighting will stop, there'll be a ceasefire, and you'll have a frozen conflict. It'll be a lot like Korea on the 38th parallel, as you all know, North Korea on one side, South Korea on the other. You'll have a frozen conflict, and the potential for escalation will be ever-present. And you want to understand, the United States will be involved in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe, doing everything it can to damage Russia. We will not lose gracefully. We will not lose in Ukraine and pivot to Asia. We will stay in Ukraine. We will continue to support Ukraine. We will continue to look for opportunities to screw the Russians. And the Russians will look for opportunities to screw us. You'll have this nasty security competition in Eastern Europe. There's no end in sight to the trouble that we are now facing in Ukraine, which, by the way, tells you what a massive mistake we made in April 2008 trying to bring Ukraine into NATO. But my bottom line to you here is that that makes it very difficult to pivot. So that's the Ukraine issue. And if I had come here last month, instead of coming this month, at this point in time, I would have stopped the talk here. <laughs> right? But now, we have another massive problem confronting us that I don't know who saw coming. I certainly didn't. The Israelis certainly didn't see it coming. But if you go back to October 6th, like the Middle East was a peaceful region uh, compared to what was going on in Eastern Europe. 
it looked like a, a, a remarkably um, a peaceful area. Uh, and Jake Sullivan, as you know, basically said that, uh, that the Middle East hadn't looked so good in a long time. But then came October 7th, and Hamas attacked Israel, and uh, in a deadly, effective way. And, of course, the Israelis uh, have reacted by declaring war on Hamas. And you now have this giant conflict between Israel and Hamas that threatens to escalate to where Hezbollah might come in, conflict might break out on the West Bank, or even the Iranians might come in. So this is a really dangerous situation. And much like Ukraine, we're going to sink deeper into the mud here, and this one's not going away anytime soon. Right? Now, why do I say that? The first thing you want to keep in mind when you talk about Israel and the United States is that the two countries are joined at the hip. There's just no question about that. I don't think this is a controversial issue. I don't think you've ever had a closer relationship between any two countries than you have between Israel and the United States. So it's very hard for the United States in any meaningful way to distance itself from Israel. That's the first point you want to keep in mind. Second point you want to keep in mind is that the taproot of the problem here is the Israel-Palestine or the Israel-Palestinian conflict. That, that's the taproot. And you just have to understand what that conflict looks like. This is a long-standing conflict, as you all know. But you just want to understand its essence because that tells you a lot about what's happening now and what is likely to happen over time. The United States has been deeply interested in creating a two-state solution, as most of you, I'm sure, know, in uh, Israel. And what the United States has been interested in doing is creating a Palestinian state in the West Bank and in Gaza and in East Jerusalem, living next door to a Jewish state, Israel. We have failed. We have not been able to push the Israelis to accept that, and uh, there's no two-state solution. So what the Israelis now have, and which the government in Israel wants, is Greater Israel. Greater Israel includes the West Bank, Gaza, and 1967 Israel, or Green Wine Israel. Okay, That's Greater Israel key point you want to keep in mind is that there are approximately 7.3 million Palestinians and approximately 7.3 million Israeli Jews in Greater Israel. There is rough equality between Palestinians and Israeli Jews. You just want to think about that. So when you think about Israel and you think about Israel as the Jewish state, completely understandable. You want to understand that that Jewish state has as many Palestinians in it as it has Jews. And by the way, there's a very prominent uh, demogra uh, demographic expert who is Israeli who argues that there are slightly more Palestinians than there are Jews. 
inside greater Israel. And furthermore, when you look at demographic trends over time, there are going to be more Palestinians than there are Jews. And this is the Jewish state. So the question is, what do you do here? Uh, and what has happened is that the Israelis do not want to give equal rights to the Palestinians. If they gave equal rights to the Palestinians, Israel would soon cease to be a Jewish state because there are more Palestinians than there are Jews, if not now, certainly in the future. So in the case of the Palestinians who are in Gaza, right, basically they have been cordoned off. They have been isolated in Gaza. And it is commonplace to refer to Gaza as the largest open-air prison in the world. And if you read virtually any account of what life is like for those Palestinians who live in Gaza, it is absolutely horrible. There is just no question about that. They live under horrible conditions, in effect, in a prison. You want to understand that Israel controls the borders around Gaza, and it controls the air above Gaza. These are not disputable issues. And again, there are about 2.1 million of those 7.3 million Palestinians in Gaza. And the fact is that the Israelis who have been playing hardball with the Palestinian since 1948 when the State of Israel was created are in a situation where the Palestinians are going to erupt from time to time. Most of us in this audience have heard of the first intifada. <coughs> we have heard of the second intifada. The intifadas were uprisings by the Palestinians. The Palestinians want their own nation state, just as the Jews wanted their own nation state. It's perfectly understandable that the Zionists were interested in coming to Palestine and creating a Jewish state, a Jewish nation state. That's completely understandable. But as my mother taught me when I was a little boy, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And if the Jews want their own nation state, are you surprised that the Palestinians want their own nation state? No. And American policymakers, especially American presidents, going back to Jimmy Carter, understood this completely and put enormous, should have put enormous pressure on Israel to accept the two-state solution. But we were incapable of doing that. We could not put great pressure on Israel. And the end result is you have a greater Israel. And inside that greater Israel are 7.3 million Palestinians. Just to take this a step further, it's very controversial to refer to Israel as an apartheid state, given how they treat the Palestinians. But Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and B'Tselem, B'Tselem is one of the leading human rights groups in the world, and it's an Israeli human rights group. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and B'Tselem all have produced significant reports that label Israel as an apartheid state. So this is the reality that you now face. And the problem is, there is no way the Israelis are ever going to agree to a two-state solution, because the political center of gravity in Israel has moved far to the right over time, 
and is likely to move further to the right over time. If you look at the Israeli demographic situation, uh, Israeli women have large numbers of babies uh, compared to Western birth rates, but your average ultra-Orthodox woman has about seven babies. So what's happening is that the ultra-Orthodox, who now represent 13% of the population, will probably represent about 30% of the population in 2050 or 2060. They're growing significantly in number. And the ultra-Orthodox, I mean, they're a problem for a variety of reasons for Israel, because first of all, they don't serve in the military. Secondly, uh, the husbands don't work and, in effect, live on welfare. Uh, but furthermore, their politics are far to the right. The ultra-Orthodox are not going to be sympathetic to a two-state solution. Furthermore, after what happened on October 7th, what do you think the Israelis are going to say when you say, let's move towards a two-state solution? They're going to look at you like you're crazy, given what happened on October 7th. So all of this is just to say, the only hope, in my opinion, of ever settling this conflict between the Palestinians and the Jews inside of greater Israel was a two-state solution. And a two-state solution is not going to happen. That train has left the station. And again, as I said to you, it's very important to understand that the United States is joined at the hip with the Israelis, and therefore, uh, as the situation continues to fester in Israel, we are inextricably bound up in it. Let me just take this a step further, talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. First of all, we have a deep-seated interest in stability in the Middle East. We were working before October 7th, you all remember, with Saudi Arabia to get Saudi Arabia and Israel to reach some sort of accommodation. The Abraham Accords that we had helped facilitate during the Trump years between Israel and Bahrain, Israel and Morocco, and Israel and the United Arab Emirates, where relations between Israel and those three countries had significantly improved. The Biden administration was trying to get another Abraham Accord, this one, which would have been the big enchilada, involving Israel and Saudi Arabia. That's all gone now. Saudi Arabia is adamantly opposed to what's happening uh, with regard to the Israeli uh, war against the Palestinians. Uh, there's a possibility Hezbollah may come into this conflict. The Israelis and Hezbollah are exchanging rocket fire up on Israel's northern border. There's a possibility that Iran might come in. As I said before, there's a possibility that conflict will break out on the West Bank. Approximately 90 Palestinians have been killed on the West Bank since October 7th. The potential for this one spiraling out of control within the context of the Middle East is really uh, very, very worrisome. And by the way, you understand you know, we sent this Armada, this aircraft carrier battle group, the Gerald, USS Gerald Ford aircraft carrier battle group off the coast, put it off the coast of Israel. It shot down three cruise missiles. U.S. forces shot down three cruise missiles that the Houthis in Yemen had fired at Israel. 
So in a very important way, we've already been involved in, of course, a very tiny way in the fighting. And if this one spins out of control in a big way, we're likely to get dragged in. And furthermore, as I told you, there's no hope of this going away anytime soon. Then there's the diplomatic dimension to this. The Russians and the Chinese just love this situation, right? And they're saying all sorts of things about how the Americans failed to produce a diplomatic solution that would have given the Palestinians a state of their own. And this is, of course, a message that resonates all around the planet, right? We're in all sorts of trouble in the Arab world. This may lead to another oil embargo. Um, uh, and furthermore, in the global south, the global south, we're very interested in winning the allegiance of the global south, especially to help us in Ukraine. We're in deep trouble in the global south as a result of this. So in terms of stability in the Middle East, in terms of our diplomatic position around the world as a result of the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we're, we're in deep trouble, right? And again, this is one of these situations that has no solution. I mean, that I can see. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm humiliated. And a year from now, when I return, when Tom brings me back, I can say I was wrong, right? The same thing is true with Ukraine. But I don't see the Ukraine situation or the Middle East situation looking any better. It brings me to my bottom line. We have a peer competitor. The Biden administration, as far as I'm concerned, to a person will tell you that the principal threat the United States of America faces is China. There is nobody who disagrees that China is our biggest threat. But what I'm telling you is we're in a situation where we can't fully pivot to Asia to deal with that threat because we're pinned down in the Middle East now and before that in Ukraine. Furthermore, furthermore, the Russians, who should be on our side, because of our foolish policies, have pushed them onto the side of the Chinese. This is not good. And the final point that I'll leave you with is, as you know, we in the West, and I'm sure this is true of many Australians, love the rules-based order. Right? We always talk about the rules-based order. We think it's important to obey the rules. And the West, of course, the United States, has played a key role in establishing that rules-based order, which is in our interest. The rules-based order is in tatters as a result of Ukraine, the Middle East, uh, and assorted other forms of behavior by the United States. So all of this is to say we are in the deep kimchi. Thank you. For decades, CIS has been a fiercely independent voice working hard to promote sound liberal principles. To be notified of Yes, yes. That was <clears throat> a lecture by John Mearsheimer on why the U.S. is in serious trouble. And um, if anybody was following me or listening to the lecture that he gave, which took place in Brisbane on October the 23rd, the man hit some very powerful points. He actually gave you a whole picture of what's going on, of the trouble that lies ahead for the United States of America. And as he stated, even though that the United States of America still remains the number one superpower in the world, that could very much change in the near future because China is 
building their military, they're building their economy, they're building their relationships and their diplomatic relationship and ties with other countries. And like the most important thing they said is that out of the three superpowers, which is America, Russia, and China, the foreign policy of America has pushed Russia into the arms of China. So now you have, out of the three superpowers, two of the superpowers have clinged together, which is China and Russia, which leaves America as an independent superpower faced with the united effort or united forces of the other two superpowers. So you tell me how long do you think that's going to actually last? This is your boy, Sonny Medallion. Again. Take care. Sorry I got caught up because I was thinking about how serious our situation really are. Nobody really takes the time to really analyze. Everybody wake up in the morning and live their daily lives like it's all good, nothing's wrong. But they don't realize that the normal culture, the normal routine of our normal lives could change in a matter of a day. All it takes is for China to declare war against the United States and Russia to join them. And we could be fine. We could be running from bombs and finding our infrastructure being destroyed by bombs and and, and and gunfire. So it's a serious matter. I mean, we're, there's no country that can't be uh, attacked. America is not above the law. America is not above being attacked. And um, America has a whole lot of blood on their hands. And with that being said, um, I think we should really start to get more interested and more active in the politics that governs our lives because these politics can change the course of our normal routine and our normal lives. Your boy, Sonny Medallion. Hit me back, catch you back on the next issue. Thank you for joining us for the most controversial podcast on the air, Baptized in Eternal Fire, with your host, Sonny Medallion. Every episode, we bring you the real truth behind the so-called truth offered to you by the media, exposing the lies, propaganda, and falsehoods. Sunny puts it together piece by piece. Baptized in eternal fire will purge you and cleanse you with the true facts behind today's current events. We'll see you next time.